This morning I'd ask you to turn to the book of Ezra, the fourth chapter. We'll be reading verses 1 to 5. This morning is week 7 in our study of Ezra and Nehemiah, the rebuilding of the altar, the temple, and Jerusalem. And if you have been here before, I want to rehearse just a few things that we've learned so far. Um, To this point in the first three chapters of Ezra, the account of the return of the exiles at the command of Cyrus, the king of Persia, has been very, very positive. In fact, it's almost been heavenly. The joy of the Israelites as they returned from captivity and again saw their beloved homeland, their happiness as they set about building an altar on which they might worship their God, Jehovah of Israel, And then their shouts of triumph and tears of remembrance as they laid the foundation stones for the rebuilding of the temple. These were times to celebrate as they saw the God of their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, provide everything they needed to restore their nation's glory. It's been very interesting preaching through these texts and trying to figure out how to communicate uh, the the conflict between the people of Israel and the surrounding lands. And I, one of the problems I run into is that today we use the name of God way too freely, way too liberally. We think nothing of telling jokes that have God's name in them, the Holy Spirit's name in them. Um, and my, my conviction is that it's a violation of God's commandment that we're not to take his name in vain. But even if you get past the issue of using God's name for jokes, you get into the question of what exactly is the name of God. And when it comes to Christianity, we can all speak about Jesus Christ, and everybody sort of vibes with that, Jesus, Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that marks a particular religion. But when you move back into the Old Testament, and I say God, well, who's God? What God? And so I find myself wanting to return to uh, a habit that my father had when he read the Bible for family devotions, where he read from the Jerusalem Bible. And in the Jerusalem Bible, when they used the uniquely Hebrew Israelite name for God, they would say Yahweh. And every time you read Yahweh, you had immediately an understanding that we weren't talking about Baal. You know, we weren't talking about just some cosmic god like Zeus of the Greeks. That this god was the god, the only true god, and that his name was uniquely this Hebrew name, Yahweh, which they would not pronounce. Uh, they would not speak. Um, sometimes we use the word Jehovah. But what we have to understand is that as these people celebrated their restoration to their land, immediately they began to to worship their God. And their God was Yahweh or Jehovah. And their God was not the God of the surrounding nations. Their temple was not the temple of the other nations that surrounded them. This was the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It was no other God. Now, one of the problems I have in explaining that to us this morning is that we live in a culture that is completely given over to pluralism and diversity. And so, if anybody even uses the word God, our hearts naturally fuzzy up towards them. You know, oh, he mentioned God, you know, an athlete, I just want to thank God. And we go, yes, you know, as if anybody standing behind God must be a Christian. Well, that's what we're going to get into this morning. 
Up until now, it's been hail hearty, fellow well met. Everybody's been happy. Everybody's been building the altar and then building the temple, and they're going to get it, get around to building Jerusalem. They've been restored to their land. They even have a decree from the most powerful man in the world that they are to go back to their homeland and do this. They've been partying. They've been having their holidays. They have been doing their sacrifices. They've been singing with joy. Even the tears of the old people really had the effect of, of showing the beauty of the celebration of this restoration and this work of reform and renewal. But now all of a sudden, with chapter 4, the account changes. And revival and restoration meet opposition. There are always those who, rather than celebrating the restoration of the good and the right and the true, hate and oppose the work of reform and renewal. Now, think with me for a second about the statement I made. There are always those who are opposed to the things of God and to those who seek to reform and to revive, to renew, to restore the worship of the true God. If there was ever a time when there was a man who was able to do this work of revival and reform perfectly and therefore not to create needless problems where the pagans would be offended by him, it would be Jesus because Jesus was perfect. And so if there was ever a case where we could say this was a man who was not tactless in a sinful way, this was a man who always had the right word, who lived in a way that didn't give a lie to the things that he said, this was a man who used wonderful illustrations in his preaching, who was kind and tender to the little children and took them in his arms. He was never rude to women. He always held the door. Whatever is perfect, this is Jesus. And so if there's ever a case where someone who is bringing in the kingdom of God, who is doing the work of reform and revival, shouldn't have been offensive, it would have been Jesus, right? But what do we see about Jesus? Well, from the moment that Jesus began his public ministry... What did he say? What did he say would be the response to his ministry? This perfect man, this perfect gentleman. All right. Well, turn with me to Luke 4 and we'll see. Keep your finger in Ezra 4. <laughs> we'll get back there. And here in Luke 4, we see the beginning of Jesus' ministry in Nazareth of Galilee. His home city, his home state. And there we read, Jesus is in the synagogue on the Sabbath. And he reads the scripture. Very, very uh, symbolic thing. Very, very important moment. And in verse 18 we see, he's reading and he reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set free those who are oppressed, oppressed to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Now think about this. This is exactly what these Jews, going back to the land of Israel, this is exactly what they're going through, right? Here they are. They've been proclaimed what? Release from captivity. The oppressed are sent from, by Cyrus back to their land. So they're free. And everything that this passage symbolizes is now coming true for them. All right? So Jesus says, okay, here I am and I'm going to do it again. You know, Moses whooped up on Pharaoh and the Egyptians and the people were let go. This is what the anthem we just had 
sang about. And then we had the Israelites being released from Cyrus. They went back to the land. They restored everything. And now here I am. And there's been a prophecy. And he says, Recovery of the sight of the blessed. Set free those who are oppressed to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, What? Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Same thing. Same thing. The land is being fulfilled. Revival and reform is hit. The oppressed are released. The captives come back. So Jesus says, okay, here it comes. It was prophesied. Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And then look at verse 22. And all were speaking well of him. He was a perfect gentleman. He just said good things were going to happen. All were speaking well of him. But what does the Bible say about that? It says what? Beware when all men speak well of you. And Jesus wasn't sucked in for a moment. And he goes on and he says, and they were wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And then skip down to verse 24. But Jesus said what? He said, truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. Okay, so if you think that ever in the history of man there has been a restoration of the true worship of God, there has been reform, there has been revival, and it has simply been embraced, Jesus is the perfect man. His words were gracious. All men spoke well of him. And in that very moment, Jesus said, here in my hometown where you all know me and love me and love my parents, I will not be honored. And then you look at the life of Jesus and how could you fail to see it? You know, I, I, it just always boggles my mind that we think it was something we did that was wrong that caused people to hate God's truth. If we'd just been more tactful, if we'd just not gone home over vacation and, and spoken to our parents about Jesus, but just waited until next year, then maybe there wouldn't be such conflict in our home. You know, if the pastor had just sort of chilled out like Paul did, you know, in Ephesus, you know, been reasonable, quieted his voice down, you know, not gone into the public places, but maybe gone into, you know, a park out at the edge of town, like out there at uh, Cars Farm, you know, away from the center of things, then Paul wouldn't have gotten into such trouble. We always think that it's the messenger that has caused the offense. But Jesus is not offensive. He's gracious. He's in his homeland. They've seen him work. They've seen him grow. He has been commended by everybody. They respect him. They love him. All right? And he says, a prophet is not honored in his own land. And so here we go back. And we see that this Jesus, who's perfect, was a scandal, was opposed, and this Jesus died, and we all are committed to the cross of Christ and to the blood of Christ. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And yet, remember, he was killed for a reason, and it was because he was offensive. And it was because we as sinful men hated him and killed him. All right? The offense must come, but woe to the man by whom that offense comes. And so I'm trying to emphasize the point that all through the history of man there has been hatred for God and hatred for his word and hatred for those who identify with God and his word. This is constant throughout history. 
Um, I found in my library an old book, and I'm sure Mary Lee's father gave it to me, and it's by uh, John Newton. And I opened it up. I didn't realize I had a book that was centuries old like that uh, by him. And so I opened it up, and I read the cover page. I think it was a couple years ago when the Vacation Bible School wanted uh, something having to do with John Newton. I think that's why I, I found the book. And I opened it up, and it's a book of ecclesiastical history, and I wish I had it so I could read you the title page. You know how back then they had these long title pages? You know, they just went on and on and on. Well, the title page on this is something like Ecclesiastical History, in which the author will show that in all times, in all places, it has always been true that everybody opposes the church of Jesus Christ and the godly. And that was the title of the book. Well, if you think about the 16th century, you think about Martin Luther and John Calvin. They did not have a cakewalk as they cried out against the false church in Rome, as they sought to stop her sale of indulgences and her shopkeeping approach to the eternal salvation of her followers. It wasn't a cakewalk. And now today, as I simply state objectively what it is that they did in the Reformation, I'll bet a number of you had tension built in you, just as I described what they did. It wasn't an easy thing to lead reform. And down through history, this has been true. Still today, as Church of the Good Shepherd has worked to restore the true preaching, the true teaching, the true exercise of discipline, the true administration of the sacraments, biblically, in this community, Church of the Good Shepherd has not been without opposition. Uh, we, we began with great joy and contentment. Uh, we're almost to our seventh uh, anniversary, but we met opposition. And, you know, it's little things like the neighbors opposing our building on, on the farm. You know, and we just think, well, you know, people are prima donnas. They like their parkland, you know. It, it, it's not spiritual. And then Phil Henry, you remember him, stands up and points out that this is opposition to Jesus Christ. This is not just an innocuous neighbor issue. All right? And we know, sadly, that there are those who have been in the midst of our church who at one time, having committed themselves to the holiness without which no man will see God, have cast off God and have departed. And uh, it's been a very sad thing, but even in our own church life, we see this same example. So, the work of reform, of revival, of restoration in Bloomington today, at the Diet of Worms or in Geneva in the 16th century, in the village of Galilee 2,000 years ago, and back in Jerusalem in the time of Ezra, it never proceeds in peaceful simplicity, but it's always deposed by the evil one and by those that he has blinded to spiritual truth and eternal life. And so it was with the children of Israel working to rebuild their homeland, and specifically Jerusalem and Yahweh's temple. The people of the land surrounding them, those that we are introduced to in the Gospels of Samaritans, set out to stop the work. Now, with that long introduction, let's read our text, Ezra 4, verses 1 to 5. This is God's word, and it's eternally true. Now, when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the sons of captivity were building a temple to the Lord God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' households and said to them, Let us build with you, for we, like you, seek your God, and we have been sacrificing to him since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us up here. 
But Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the heads of fathers' households of Israel said to them, You have nothing in common with us in building a house to our God, but we ourselves will together build to the Lord God of Israel as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and frightened them from building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their counsel all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. This is God's word. Now, what a story. If you change the words and the principal characters in it just slightly, it could easily be an account of our own lives of our own homes, of our own families and marriages and friendships and academic departments and churches, of our own factories and and workshops. Initially, the threat to righteousness takes the form of friendship. They deceptively sought to make common cause with the people and with God's plan. But then when their first effort is rebuffed, and actually, fairly politely, you know, they, they cite authority. They say, well, Cyrus has told us to do this, you know, and it's not completely impolite. When they're rebuffed, what happens? Then the enemies of the godly are inflamed into exposing their true nature, and their initial apparently friendly overture quickly turns into hatred, open resistance, and conflict, even higher counselors to oppose it. And so here we have the story of the people of God in this life. Our Lord warned us, in the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. And with this text, we pick up this story of the opposition they suffered as they began to rebuild the temple. Verse 1, now when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the people of the exile were building a temple to the Lord God of Israel. So verse 1 clarifies what's about to happen by referring to those who come offering their help to the sons of captivity, and by the way, you wonder why I say the sons of captivity. Um, The reason I say it is that the Hebrew is not the people of the exile. And uh, I have this weird thing where I believe that the original languages are inspired, and so we ought to use the words that they use. And the word is bane, it's son. And all through the Old Testament, when you see the King James versions, for instance, uh, using the phrase children of Israel. It's always Bain. Uh, it's sons. And you'll see the same theme where it talks about the heads of fathers' households. Uh, this is the way the Hebrew language works. It always uses the male of the species to, uh, to represent the whole group. And so as we go through, I'm simply going to use the literal construction that is there in the Hebrew. Anyhow... Uh, What we see here is that the enemies of Judah and Benjamin are opposing the sons of the captivity or the exile in their building of a temple. And from Bible history, we know that this promised land was after a time divided into two kingdoms. There was Samaria up north and down below was Judea. And so what we're seeing here is that the three principal tribes of this area, predominating down in the south, are these tribes of Levi, the priestly workers, and then Judah and Benjamin. And of course, the the land gets its name from uh, one of these tribes, Judea or Judah. And so this is why the opposition to their work is referred to by the term 
the enemies of Judah and Benjamin. These are the tribes that principally own this southern part of Israel. The temple was being rebuilt. Now, why would they oppose this? They're seeking to rebuild the temple. Well, the temple of any people was the center of their power, their people's power. You remember that when Cyrus sends them back, he takes out the treasure that had been stolen from their temple, and he sends it back with them to begin their worship. And so it's sort of the treasury of the nation. The temple of any people was the center of their power, their national reputation, and so the rebuilding of the temple represented a real threat to the Samaritans and to the people that lived in the land. Their opposition began when they heard that the sons of captivity were building a temple to the Lord God of Israel. But their opposition was not honest. It was manipulative and it was deceptive. They didn't come saying, stop or we'll shoot. That would have been a relief to have such straightforward opposition. Instead, they came bearing gifts, as it were. White man come bearing gifts. All right? You don't trust it. They came wearing the uniform of their enemies. It's a disgusting thing in war when you use women and children as human shields, when you wear the uniform of your enemy. All right? But they came wearing the uniforms of their enemies. They spoke of their own devotion to the God of Israel and their desire to assist in the work of rebuilding his temple. They were a lot like Herod, who asked the wise men to come back to him and to report on what they found about the king of the Jews. You know, when you find him, come back and tell me, because I'd like to go and worship him also. And all the while, he's a snake, he's a viper. Because what he's going to do is he's going to go and kill Jesus as soon as he finds out where he is, because Jesus is a threat to him. All right? Well, that's what these people are doing also. They are the enemies of the rebuilding of the temple, the enemies of Yahweh, the Lord God of Israel, the enemies of the people of God. But being sneaky and devious, in verse 2, this is how they do it. They approach Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' houses, and they say to him, let us build with you. For we, like you, seek your God. And we have been sacrificing to him since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us up here. Let us build with you. Such a small and a reasonable request. Let us make common cause with you in your pious work. We too are very religious people. And we want to honor the Lord God of Israel by assisting you in rebuilding it. Won't you let us join in Zerubbabel? In fact, they didn't just claim to be a religious people, and that's a very easy thing to do. I'm a very religious man. My wife and I have devotions every night or something like that, but they actually claimed the religion of Israel. It wasn't any religion. It was the religion of Yahweh. They said that they worship the God of Israel. Look at verse 2, and it becomes clear that their argument is so smooth as to be deadly. They're religious. They're Israelitish religious they worship the only true God. And furthermore, you, Johnny, come lately's in this land. Let me remind you that we were worshiping the God of Israel from way back when we first were brought into this land. In other words, we've been here doing this while you guys were off gallivanting around in Persia. You know, from the time we were brought here, we have been worshiping the true God. And so with all this proof of piety and goodwill, why do you wonder why they received such a straight arm? Bam! From Zerubbabel. Wasn't Zerubbabel unreasonably strict and, and uncharitably rigid? 
After all, we might say, didn't the Lord Jesus himself say that he who is not against us is for us? And didn't Moses demonstrate a similar magnanimous spirit when Joshua tried to get him to stop Eldad and Medad from prophesying within the camp, saying, what did Moses say? He said, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. And so what's the matter with Zerubbabel? Doesn't he know how small he appears to us as we look back at him over the tides of history? But again, as we think these thoughts and ask these questions, we're confronted with this small construction at the beginning of verse 1 that sets the tone for the text. What is the construction? Well, look at verse 1. Now when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin. If we were in any question as to their motivation, the Holy Spirit has given us his inspired word, and the inspired word labels them the enemies of Judah and Benjamin. And so, being a faithful leader of the people of God, Zerubbabel answers them, and he says this, verse 3, But Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the heads of fathers' households of Israel said to them, What? You have nothing in common with us in building a house to our God. But we ourselves would together build to the Lord God of Israel as King Cyrus, the king of Persia's command. That's what they're in essence saying is the construction that we would use today, where we would say to them, This is none of your business. That's exactly what they said. What have you to do with this? This is none of your business. We're going to do the work. Now, we first saw a hint of these enemies in chapter 3, verse 3, where we read, So they set up the altar on its foundation, for they were terrified, what? Because of what? Do you remember? Because of the peoples of the land. Now, who are these peoples of the land? I mean, it would help us to understand Zerubbabel's straight arm, it would help us to understand the growing tension if we knew the origin of these peoples of the land. Well, turn with me to 2 Kings 17, verse 24. 2 Kings 17, verse 24. Because all through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, we need to have firmly fixed in our minds that these people, these people of the land, these people who come bearing gifts, are the Samaritans. They are the predecessors to those that there was such hatred for in the time of Christ. And we need to have this in our minds to understand why it is that there is such conflict between them and the tribes of Judah. Let's read 2 Kings 17, 24-34. There we read, The king of Assyria brought men from Babylon. So the king of Assyria has taken over the promised land, and he has taken over this land of Samaria, or Israel, up in the north. And it says he brought men from Babylon. So he goes and gets pagans from his pagan empire. He brings people from Babylon and from Cutha and from Ava and from Hamath and from Sepharvaim and settles them in the cities of Samaria in place of the sons of Israel. So these are their ancestors, these peoples of the land. And so they possessed Samaria and lived in its cities. This is the origin of the word Samaritans. This is the beginning of this conflict. At the beginning of their living there, they did not fear the Lord. Now, it's, watch this. This is interesting. Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. There's a verse you probably never knew was in Scripture. The Lord sent lions. 
So they spoke to the king of Assyria, saying, The nations whom you have carried away into exile in the cities of Samaria do not know the custom of the God of the land. So he has sent lions among them, and behold, they kill them because they do not know the custom of the God of the land. Then the king of Assyria commanded, saying, Take there one of the priests whom you carried away into exile and let him go and live there and let him teach them the custom of the God of the land. So essentially you have a missionary. You have somebody who has been taken into captivity. He's, he's a Jewish priest, all right? And they say, these, these lions are killing us, you know? And he says, well, okay, I'll send you a priest that we took away. He can come back. He can teach you the ways of the God of the land, so he'll be pacified. And he'll, you'll get along well with him after this, all right? So they take one of them. So one of the priests, verse 28, whom they had carried away into exile from Samaria, came and lived at Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. So all's, all's, all's okay now, right? They have the true religion. They're worshiping the true God. Everything's cool, right? Right? But what does it say? Next verse, watch. But every nation still made gods of its own. And here we have the exact same issue that we deal with today. We really want the true God, but we really want our idols. We really want to worship God from 11 to 12 Sunday morning and then go home and watch football all afternoon. You know, can't we be syncretistic? Can't we take the good of America and the good of God and put them together and have like a mega church in DuPage County, you know? And, and it's just bliss, you know? Everything is good because we're the richest people in the richest land in the richest time of history. And then we have Jesus to boot for when we die. And that is American Christianity. And so here they have this wonderful land. The owners are kicked out. They can inherit all the you know, farms and all the orchards that are already planted. You know, and, and, and then there's this thing about the lions, but we'll handle that. We'll go get a priest that knows the God of this land, gnarly God, and he'll come in and he'll teach us how to have that too. And so they have that. And then they have this. And this is what? Well, it goes on. Let's read it. But every nation still made gods of its own and put them in the houses of the high places which the people of Samaria had made. Every nation in their cities in which they live. Okay? And this is what God specifically prohibited. God said, you are not to worship any place you want. You're not to set up an idol in your hill on your farm, Breezy Hole. Okay? You are to go to Jerusalem. And that is the place where I am allowing you to worship me. You are not to set up altars so that each one of you owns his own individual cult, his own individual religion. It's a peculiar expression of his farm and his city and his state. But you are to come to Jerusalem. And that is the only place that you are to worship. And outside of Jerusalem, anything that happens that is claimed to be the worship of me is just generically referred to in Scripture as the high places. All right, because people will go to the high place to worship. And it is always definitively forever referred to as idolatry. All right, people say, I don't need the church to worship. I, I go out into nature and I commune, you know. Yeah, there have always been high places. Places that make us feel warm thoughts about God. That make us feel particularly one with nature. Places that we commune with everything that is sort of cosmic and fuzzy and, and beautiful in the world. And so, what they do is they still make their gods of their own. They put them in the houses on their high places, which the people of Samaria made every nation in their cities in which they live. Every place had its own high place. Every place did idolatry. 
Now, to the specifics. The men of Babylon made Succothonoth. So that's the name of their god. The men of Kuth made Nergal. That's the name of their god. The men of Hamath made Ashima. Okay? That's their god. The Avites made Nibaz and Tartak. And the Sephirvites burned their children in the fire to Adramelech and Anamelech, the gods of Sephirvaim. Yeah, just this little note thrown in that these made their God and these made their God and these made these God and these, these took their children and burned them in the mouths of their gods. So if you didn't get the nature of what's being described here, I hope you got it now. It's not pretty. Idolatry is wicked and the fruit is clear. They also, verse 32, feared the Lord and appointed from among themselves priests of the high places who acted for them in the houses of the high places. You see, this is syncretism. They feared God. So they took priests of the true God, but not to Jerusalem and not to the restoration of the altar in Jerusalem, but on their high places, because after all, God's not rigid. You know, if it were the Jews that were here, they'd have to submit to the law that God gave them, but... What God wants to know from us is that our hearts are inclined in the right direction. Our, our intentions are good. You know, we're a very magnanimous people. You know, we're not opposed to having the call of Israel here. You know, uh, we'll, we'll have a priest lead us in that direction also. They feared the Lord, again, verse 33, and served their own gods. Now, this is, this is what's called an oxymoron. They feared the Lord and served their own God. You can't do that. And the Bible knows you know that you can't do that. So don't be misled and think, well, this is a wonderful uh, synchronicity. All right? They feared the Lord, served their own gods according to the custom of the nations from among whom they had been carried away into exile. To this day, they do according to the earlier customs. And then the truth comes out of Scripture. They do not fear the Lord, nor do they follow their statutes or their ordinances or the law or the commandments which the Lord commanded, the sons of Jacob whom he named Israel. All right, do you see what's going on here? These people are pagans. They're brought into the promised land. The people in the promised land who belong to God are removed. The people who are brought in begin to be eaten by lions. They then say, well, send us a priest so we can do that God's trip too because then he'll get reasonable and the lions will stop consuming us. So that guy comes in, begins to give them a little bit of the true religion, and then they have a hodgepodge, syncretism, all right? Little of this, little of that. Exactly what America wants to give us today. All right? Little bit of this, little bit of that. I'll tell you what. You can have your religion in private, and then I'll make sure you're never alone. That's what Lewis said. All right? So here we all say, Lord, help me not to be a fornicator, and Lord, help me not to be an, adult, uh, an adulterer, and Lord, help me not to be somebody who gives himself to another man as a man or to another woman as a woman. All right? And then we go into our departments at the university, and we have to write papers about how the whole world was lost in ignorance until the sodomy laws started being removed from the books. And then we had good constitutional interpretation. We discovered a right to privacy. We began to be able to kill our babies. And just make sure that when you're on this campus, you never upset that apple cart. You know, on campus, we own you. And then you can go in your church on Sunday morning, although we won't let you move your church down to the goat farm because, again, you know, there's certain things that you have to dot the I's and cross the T's, you know. And so there's this unbelievable pressure. And the pressure is to have you serve the God of Israel so that the lions don't consume you, so you have some place to go when you die. But in this life, we own you. And we don't just own your body, 
We own your thoughts. And your thoughts are to be inclusive and pluralistic thoughts. You are not to think of homosexuals as being violators of God's law. You're not to remember that God made Adam and Eve and gave them to each other. You're to think of it as a gender choice. You're to think of it as a sex preference. You're to think of people as having a whole spectrum of sexual desires. And if you think that way on campus and write your papers that way and speak that way and don't cast aspersions at people that are different than you, and after all, that's why you're uptight about it anyhow, because you're just different. You're going to be a little bit fearful about your own identity, I think, really, if we got down to it. Um, I mean, do you understand... This is syncretism. This is where you can have your own God in the privacy of your church on Sunday morning. You want to go into your prayer closet, that's fine. But when you come on campus, we own you. And you will not speak up. You will not write in your papers. You will not be express any revulsion at any wickedness that you see. When your professor shoves his sacrifice of his children to the altars of his gods defends abortion. In the interest of convenience, we kill our little ones to the gods that we care about. You know, We'll just all sit by and say, well, you know, I have a different perspective. You know, And that's all that was required of Zerubbabel. Well, you know, we're glad to see you opening up a little bit more to our perspective. And, you know, we'd like to make common cause with you. You know, the more hands, the, the quicker the work goes. You know, And Zerubbabel really lost a wonderful opportunity of, of being quite efficient with the wealth of God's people. After all, had he just allowed them to make common cause, think of how much more quickly the work would have been done. You know, the temple of God would have been restored more quickly. And after all, these people, you can't expect people just overnight to change. They had come out of wicked nations, and they were, they were, you know, the trajectory was in the right direction, you know. They brought in a priest, and he began to teach them, and so we just give them a little time, you know. Well, you know, Zerubbabel's the Old Testament, and they were rigid back then, and their God was a nasty God. He was so judgmental. And so you can't expect Zerubbabel to be different. But, you know, the wonderful thing is we go into the New Testament, the Gospels, and Jesus is so much more reasonable. You know, Jesus is soft. They are hard. Jesus is soft, you know. And that's why you have an Old Testament and a New Testament. We're New Testament people, right? But you know I'm selling you down the river, right? You know that I'm, I'm sucking you in, right? And if, if I were to tell you, divulge myself, I'm sucking you in, Jesus is no different. Where would you go to prove that? Samaritans. One of the most soft and tender and velveteen rabbity stories there is in the Gospels. Everybody uses it to show that Jesus was such a woman lover. Remember the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman? Everybody tells that story and says, you know, here Jesus was just hanging out with a woman, you know? And then she was like the first preacher because she went back to her town and she said, come and meet the man that's told me everything I, that I've ever done in my life. You know? And we kind of skip over the fact that Jesus said, go call your husband or you know, where's your husband? And yeah, you're right that you don't have a husband because you've had husband after husband. You know? And the one you're currently living with isn't your husband. Well, we, we kind of jump over that, but Jesus was such a gentleman. You know? 
But there is a conflict in that conversation that we never, ever, ever think about it. And without that conflict in that discussion, we don't begin to understand what's going on here in Ezra. All right? What is the conflict? Turn with me, please, to the book of, to the gospel, I should say, of John, the fourth chapter. And there we see it. What do we see? Jesus has met the woman at the well. His disciples have gone in to get provisions in the town. Jesus engages her. He asks for water. Remember, this is a Samaritan woman. This is a descendant of this hodgepodge people with their hodgepodge religion. All right? She comes out and Jesus does evangelism. She loves, Jesus loves her. And so he works on her soul, as you and I should every time we go to get water and gas and milk. All right? And so they begin this conversation. And then it gets intense because Jesus points to her sin. All right? And picking up with verse 19, she does what every person who has had their sin exposed and had heaven and hell placed in front of them seeks to do, which is to escape the pressure cooker. And she's looking for any way out of this because it's just gotten too intense. She was going to get water. She didn't expect the Spanish Inquisition. All right? So what happens? She's looking for an out and she says to him, verse 19, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. So it starts with uh, flattery. All right? And then she says, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. You see, our people believe that you can worship in the high places, but you people say that that's idolatry and that it has to be Jerusalem. Same issue. Same exact issue. These people that came to Ezra had been worshipping in their high places. Yeah, they referred to the God of Israel, but they had not rebuilt the temple. They had not put up the altar. They were off in their high places. And now the cult begins to grow again in the holy city at the place of holiness where God had commanded. And they say, okay, we'll help with this. But they were never doing it before. And to this day, with Jesus sitting next to her at the well, she says, our forefathers, what? It's very clear. Our forefathers worshipped in this mountain. They're not in Jerusalem. They're far out of Jerusalem. And you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. And what does Jesus say to her? Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. So Jesus gives her a picture of the future. And we all wish he'd stop there. But watch what he says next. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. It is amazing to me that people have the audacity to use this story as an illustration of what a perfect gentleman Jesus was. And yet not one of those who argue this would ever have called out her sin. And not one of them would ever have had the audacity to say, you worship what you don't know. We worship what we do know. Salvation is of the Jews. Hated Samaritan. You know, you should make common cause with people that you're trying to witness to. You know, you don't say salvation is of the Jews to a Samaritan. You know, it would be like going into the south side of Chicago and saying salvation is of the whites. You know, it's not a a sensitive thing to say. It's not tactful. And that's precisely what is at stake 
when these men come to Zerubbabel and they say, let us help you. You know, just blur the lines a little bit. You know, act as if we're one with you in the seeking of the true God. And we'll help you. We'll get it done quicker. You won't have to worry about our opposition to you. You know, we, you know, we're, you know, we're like you, you know, you know. And brothers and sisters, this is precisely what is at stake with the issue of the mainline denominations and biblical churches. Mainline denominations speak of God and the Spirit. And they open the Word. And you go to their general assemblies as I did for year after year when I was in them. And they just have arguments over my God and your God, and my God thinks homosexuality is a blessing. And, you know, unfortunately, having lived in Boulder and Madison, I knew people who were tempted by homosexuality. It wasn't a blessing to them. Any idiot knows that. But, you know, they have a different God, and all of us interpret scriptures in different ways. And so what we need to do is just give up all this need to control other people's moral lives there's a great diversity. America's the melting pot. We have a hodgepodge, and let's celebrate diversity. And the gods of the pagans are always seeking to seduce God's true people from being single-minded. And we're always intimidated into thinking if we say no to them, they could get nasty. And we might not get our doctorate, and our thesis committee might tell us no. And the, the people on the line might make life intolerable for us, so we have to go back to working swing shift instead of day shift. You know, we might not get the bids, you know. And there are just innumerable reasons for us to just make slight concessions so that we can get along with them and admit that they do wor- worship the same God, you know. Zerubbabel is a man. And so were the other heads of fathers' households in Jeshua. And they said, "Uh uh-uh, you have no business here. Jesus said, salvation of the Jews. And Jesus was a man. He was a gentleman. And you know what? Every single time, you know what's really at stake? As we try to compromise our faith, okay, for the sake of peace, and we like to think ourselves that the reason we're doing this is that we really care about these people and we want to help them. And it's a lie from Satan. The truth is we despise the people that we make compromises with. Do you understand that? When you're sitting in a class, when you're talking to a coworker, when you're sitting with your wife and you refuse to deal with the truth of what she is proposing to you or he, your husband is proposing, you don't love her. You don't love him. You hate him. You despise his soul because you are willing to draw a blind over his soul and over God's truth and see him go to hell. Because that's where all those who try to combine idolatry with God will end up. And so the truth isn't, you're not being reasonable. Jesus wasn't tactless when he said that. He began to be tactful when he said salvation is of the Jews. He began to love her when he exposed her sin. The application here is, 
always, in all time, in all places, the people of God have been under attack from those who hate God. And they use a variety of techniques. And often the technique they use is to come within the church and to say, take us as members, even though we have a slightly different take on the issue of homosexuality. And we say, well, you know, do you love Jesus? I love Jesus. But, you know, I don't believe in, 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 in the divinity of, of, of the Holy Spirit or the personhood. Well, yeah, but do you love Jesus? And can we sing songs together? Well, yeah. Well, then who cares that the first three centuries they fought for the true doctrine of the Trinity? Today we can make common cause with churches that deny the Trinity. It's no big deal. Let's be syncretistic. We live in a large day. There's so many more important things to fight over. You know, I mean, who would think of being rigid over whether or not you were to worship on the hill of your farm or in Jerusalem? This is so unreasonable. Now, I hope I've softened you up so that you will admit this is you. And then, I hope that you catch a picture of Zerubbabel. He said no. Why did he say no? You know why he said no? Because he knew the God who said, Fear not, little flock, for I have overcome the world. <laughs> you don't need to be afraid of them. Yes, it's terrifying, but you don't need to be afraid of them. Because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. When Jesus, when Jesus threw himself on his sword in front of this woman, pointing out her sin, number one, which is a big no-no, and then number two, saying salvation is of the Jews. Guess what? <laughs> what happened? She believed. Her soul was saved. And that's what you see Jesus doing. It's what you see Paul doing. It's what you see Peter doing. It's what you see John Calvin and Martin Luther and Richard Baxter and John Knox and Jonathan Edwards. And you just see these great Corey Ten Boom. You see Rita Cuffey. And they all, they all self-immolate. They light themselves on fire for the Lord. You know, as the flames burn, souls are saved. And everybody looks at them and says, she used to be such a reasonable woman. She used to have her priorities right. She used to be headed for a Ph.D. in astronomy, and then she self-immolated. What a waste of such great talent. Me, I'm not going to be like that. I have gifts. I'll use them. <clears throat> so you have a choice. Your choice is you can be afraid, and you can make common cause with them, and you can go ahead and acknowledge that their high places really aren't so bad. Or you can believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and his word, you can say that salvation is of the Jews. You can refuse their help. And then you will begin to love them. Because at that moment, you will introduce them to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who compromises with nobody. And who, as we humble ourselves and bow before him, out of the ground there blossoms life that will endlessly. Now, we're going to get into this again in our next sermon. But ask yourself, what are you? Are you a syncretist? Are you a hodgepodge person? Are you ashamed of the gospel? Or are you like Jesus? Watch yourself as you speak to pagans. You like Jesus? 
You like Zerubbabel? Or you like Balaam? Who had to have his donkey keep him from being killed? Let's pray.